That's what we want to be talking about this morning. Now, in our foundation study, we've already, if you've not been with us, we've covered these topics to a degree. Here's the topic we want to embark on for the next few weeks. It's on the idea of the Word of God. So you're sitting in a Bible study, you're talking with a new believer, somebody that's a relative, friend, co-worker, and you're sharing with them some basic ideas about the Bible. You're going to run into a lot of different ideas of what people think about the Bible. Some will question whether or not the Bible is really God's Word. Some will question and say it's God's Word, but it has errors. It has problems. It was put together by... Man, okay, and those are common, common questions. I was reading a book that I didn't realize that this, this book I, I pick up for me, this is my like for like reading, uh, pick up books that talk about historical, you know, the, the real remote aspects of history or somebody after their event, what happened to their life. And I was picking up last night, just uh, my, my reading to slumber off was um, mysteries that are still unsolved. And I started reading this one section. I thought the book up to this point was pretty good. And it went into a whole section on, did Jesus really die? I was so angry, I couldn't go to sleep for a while. Okay, This book went into all this idea that Jesus never died, that Jesus, it was just a scam, and there isn't real, and the question was, is there a real Jesus? Even, you know, and so um, it, it was not the reading I should have done right before bed. And I, so the book, I don't think, will stay in my house very long. But those are, the, those are the types of things that we run into. And so what we want to talk about this morning is the importance of the Bible. You're sharing in a, in a Bible study. And so the story, you know, we have, we all know this, Shackleton and his group tried to cross the Arctic and go across and reach the South Pole. And they had disaster. Their ship, the Endurance, got caught in the ice. It was smashed. And so he and his crew had to get to another area. And they got to Elephant Island. And then that, they were separated by, you know, the, uh, the ice flows and things of that sort. And so he and five others, realizing that this was a life and death situation, they, they go in to replenish supplies there on Elephant Island. What they decided to do is that they got in this 20-foot boat and they set across 800 miles of the water and for those two weeks, a little over two weeks, they navigated by just a compass and a sextant to get to where they could get help and then he returned and became national hero by rescuing his crew. But it was, the idea in this story is that there was a guide, something small in the storms that they were facing, in the treacheries that they were facing, the dangers, something small guided them in this vast wide ocean. We have something to guide us in the vast ocean of life and that's the word of God. And so you and I love it. You and I, we understand its importance, but how do we relay that to somebody else? So let's talk about some of that idea. You're teaching this to somebody. You want to create an appetite for the word of God. Remember that idea that parents are supposed to train up, create an appetite, rub that fig juice on the palate of the child so to create the sucking sensation. You want to create an appetite for the Word of God. So here's where I would start. I would remind that, that individual, those folk, that this is God's personal communication to mankind. This isn't a book by man. This is God's love letter. I would remind them that this is his autobiography, that this is the only book that reveals God, that without it, we don't know God. We, do, we know he's great. We know he's existing because we have what that? We have creation. What else do we have that shows that there is a divine being that has a moral code? We have conscience. But to get to know more about him, we need his work. And to know his plans for our life, his direction, his purpose. Why are, you know, the big questions. Who made me? Why am I here? 
Okay? Well, why are we here? We're going to find the answer in the Word of God. So we're sharing with the individuals and saying, hey, listen, we need the Word of God. Now, this isn't in your notes. This is additional things that I just wanted you to think about. Okay? If God didn't reveal himself to us, where would we be? How would we determine what God is? Follow along with the thought. As human beings, would you agree we don't know everything? Is that a truism? Okay. How many people were around at the beginning of creation when God started the first day of creation? No people. No people. Not until we're getting the sixth day. So without God telling us what he did, how would we know? So people who deny the word of God or discount the word of God, they come up with theories about how we came here. And you're familiar with some of those theories, yes? You know, what's the big theory about how we, we as people got here? Okay, the evolution. Okay, where does that come from? Outside the Bible. That's because as humans, we don't know everything, but we want to think we know everything. And so what we want to do is we want to come up with answers. Who made me? Or why am I? Or how did I get here? And so we come up with different ideas. The problem is that even what we do know, you and I struggle with, the humankind as a whole. Our sin nature distorts some of the knowledge that we do possess. Do you remember how it's talked about in Ephesians? Having our understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of the heart. He's talking about our sin nature, that our sin nature blinds us to spiritual truths. Even that such things as God's revealed himself in creation. What did mankind do with the revelation of creation? Do you remember what Romans talks about? They see that there's a creator, but then what did they do with it? They worship the creation more than the creator because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in imaginations and the foolish heart was darkened and they worshiped the creature more than the creator. That's because we have a sin nature. And so we have this, this issue that says, okay, we've, we've got an awareness there's a God. We've got an awareness there's a moral standard but can people even, because of sin nature, corrupt the moral standard? That's what the, can people corrupt their conscience? Can we, what is it, uh, what's the word for, uh, sear our conscience? Can we do, yeah. And so we've got a problem. Then we say, well, let's take it further. Um, when we try to reason things, God gave us a mind. That's a good thing that we should use it. Okay. When we reason do we reason always to truth? All right, let, me, let me see. The neutral has this idea. Do we typically, as humankind, do we typically, typically approach something with a neutrality, a neutral position, and say, okay, I'm totally neutral and I have no preconceptions or no bents one way or, toward, or another, and I'm totally neutral, and I will come to the truth? Does that normally happen? Okay, okay, let, let, let's, let's remind ourselves of Washington, D.C. the last couple of weeks. Is there anybody, the senators say this, we are totally neutral, we'll listen to the facts. Do we believe they're totally neutral? No. Do they come with preconceived ideas? Can they come with the same situation and have two totally different interpretations? Okay, can we do that with, with creation? We do that, okay? We do that with lots of things. And so we have to understand that without God's word, how would we come to truth? 
Oh, I'll look at creation and understand. But our sin nature bends us one way against God. The idea that no man seeks after God is saying we've got a problem. And so we need the word of God because this is the only faultless authoritative way to know God is his word. Everything else has a bent to it. Everything else could be distorted. The special revelation that God provided provides the only faultless authoritative knowledge of God and why we are here. Now think, think that through. We need to understand why are we here. What is, what, is the, what is some of the reasons given for why we exist? Okay, we know that's the truth. What are some other thoughts that people will give? We're here to eat, drink, and be merry. Do what's right in our own eyes. What's that? Okay, what else is there? What satisfies will people say? Eat, drink, be merry, do right in your own eye. Uh, family, and family is good, by the way, yes? Make names, get money. Okay, so the revelation that God gives is really, really important because it provides exclusive knowledge of salvation. Okay, how to get to heaven and godly living. There's no other book that tells people from God's perspective how to get into his kingdom. Do people come up with other religious ways and books? Sure. Okay. We need God. To, we needed God to take the initiative to reveal himself to us so we could accurately know him. Thus, he gave us the Bible. Let's make this statement. God's special self-revelation is preserved only in the Bible. Now, in the past, he revealed himself through dreams, prophets, visions. But today, how does God reveal himself? It's the word of God. 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 And somebody will say, well, you know what? I had a feeling. Okay, I have feelings too after I eat pizza late at night. Okay. Feelings are suspect because the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked who can know it. Okay, and so the only solid, solid, absolutely unmovable, unchanging, totally reliable revelation of God is God's word. God's word. And so the God's word is so important to you and me. And we understand that. Now, we're, we're sitting down with a new convert. That would that'd be heavy. And you understand that. But you're, something that would motivate you is the reason I gave you that material. To motivate you to say, they need this word of God. Because without the word of God, they won't have wisdom for living. The person that you're, you're talking to, without the word of God, they're not going to get saved. They need the word of God. And so here we go. We say, okay, let's sit down. Let's talk with them. We're going to take them to 2 Timothy 3.16. And you have that memorized or you're opening it right now. You have it in your notes. What do we learn? What do we learn about from this text? What do we learn about the Bible? You're looking at the verse. Okay. What thoughts come to mind out of this verse about the Bible? It's inspired by God. Anything else? All scripture is involved in this inspiration. Anything else? It's profitable, okay? Anything else? Okay? It's got, there's a reproofing aspect to it. Anything else? It, there's correcting aspect. There's instruction aspect. There's a doctrinal aspect. Anything else that comes by, is, through this? You're hitting a lot of it. That's great. Okay, what's that? Okay, if it's, it's given to us, so doctrine, reproof, correction implies we got to study it. Okay? Anything else? It's got everything we need. Great, great. Cindy? 
It's inspired. Okay, now let me, let me just take some of your thoughts and just fill in the blanks a little bit to help you with notes to give you some concepts here that might be helpful. It's a gift. It's given to us from God. Okay? It originated with God. This is an important thought. The Word of God, Scriptures, originated with God, not with men. It's given by God. Now, that's, that's an important concept because a lot of people will say, well, the Scriptures were made up by... Okay, and so we say, well... True, but it originated. They were the instrument. They were, they were a vessel God used, but it originated with God. The only place that inspiration, the word itself, is used in the New Testament is this verse. That literally means God breathed. Okay, like I'm doing right now, I'm breathing out as I'm speaking. The Bible is clear that God is the author of graphe, that's scripture, that's the writings, and again, pasa grafe would be all of it. That's really critical in our discussion, not just some of it, okay? That God inspired all of it. So when you're reading in your early morning devotions, you're reading through the book of Leviticus and you're struggling to stay awake, okay? Is that still inspired scripture? It is, it is. Is it still have some profit to us? It does, it does. And so when you're reading through the genealogies, and you do what I do. Big name, big name, big name, big name. Okay? Is that still inspired? Is there going to be some profit some way, shape, or form? Yes. Okay. That's important that we understand. There's an illustration in the book that's given later in the lesson. I just think it's a classic, classic illustration that uh, I've not seen or used in the past. Well, I'm going to use it in the future. And you'll hear it probably from time to time <clears throat> in the sermon. It says in that book, if you don't have it, when a musician plays a trombone, he blows air through it. The trombone affects the sound, making it different from the trumpet or tuba. Yet the trombone is not credited with creating the music. The talent and creativity belong to the musician. The music is essentially his. Audiences applaud the, applaud the trombonist, not the trombone. The musician breathes through his instrument to create his music. Similarly, God breathed through holy men. They were but instruments which he used to accomplish his purposes. The Bible is much more than the words of men. It is the word of God. What a good illustration to just give us that idea of what it means to be God-breathed. Let's take it a little bit further. The final product was inspired. Okay? And this is an important thought. The final product is what is inspired. God breathed, not the producers. Okay? God did not inspire, you know, Apostle Leon to write whatever he wanted to write. There was no Apostle Leon, just to make that clarification. But God didn't inspire him to write what he wanted. God inspired the product. So the product isn't a result of his getting, woo, I'm inspired. It's God-inspired to make sure that what's written down is God-breathed. Uh, so they didn't write exactly what they pleased. It is beneficial. You already said that. By the way, some of you alluded to this, but it has positive and negative benefit. So when people say to you, oh, I don't like negative preaching. Well, half of the profit of the Word of God is for negative purposes. Correction and reproof. Half of the profit of the Word of God is for doctrine and for instruction. So there's the positive and negative. If any of us get to a point where we're only doing one and not the other, we've become imbalanced in our Bible teaching and preaching. Uh, let's take another step. Those of the New Testament era would have understood graphe, that's the word scriptures, translated scriptures, to refer to both the Old and New Testament. 
as it is being written. In fact, they recognize and they do call some of what's being written by their contemporaries, they call it scripture. Look at 2 Peter 3. If you've never marked this, you want to mark this passage. In 2 Peter 3, there Peter is writing and he's talking and he make he's talking about Paul's writings and he makes Paul's writings in that passage as also other scriptures. Um, I want to make sure I, I've, I'm saying it exactly right. Second Timothy. I'm sorry. Second Peter. I'm even looking at the right place and saying the wrong thing. Okay, and so he's talking, verse 15, the account that long-suffering of our Lord Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, has written unto you, as also in all of his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which they that are unlearned and unstable they wrestle with, as they do also with... Other and by the way, in the in the Greek language, not to not to diminish any other language, but in the Greek language, there's two words for other. One of the words means of the exact same kind. The other word means totally different. Guess which other it uses here? The exact same kind. And so he's saying Paul's writings, Paul's epistles, are of the same kind of scriptures. And so that's an important thought, because people will say to you all the time, they didn't know, they didn't understand what was in God's word until 323. That's not true. Peter understood that Paul's writings were scripture, inspired by God. Remember, all scripture is inspired. And so it's an important text that helps you and I to understand that the epistles, as they were recognized very quickly, they understood that. Since God is perfect and makes no mistakes, what does that say about his word? If, it's, if it comes out of his mouth, it's perfect and without error. So that's, those are important thoughts. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go off, off script for a little bit. Okay, uh, not off my script, but off script from the book. And I would encourage you to write these things down just as notes, footnotes, or I'll make a copy of them for you next week. But I want to just do this for a few minutes. If you're sitting with a new convert and, or somebody who's been saved for a little bit of time, the big question often comes up is how do we know the Bible truly is God's word? Okay. How do we, what, what convinces us of that? And you and I are going to start with this idea. We're going to say, well, it, we're convinced because it starts with our faith. Okay? We, we start with faith. We believe. We believe there is a God. We believe this God chose to communicate with us. We believe that this God has the ability to communicate with us. We believe that he can communicate in such a way that we would understand. We believe this. Okay, And so faith is where we go. We believe the word of God. But as we have illustrated other times, our faith isn't just a leap in the dark. You had faith this morning when you got in your car. You had faith that the car would start, move, drive, stop, okay, steer. You, you exercised a lot of faith this morning. Yes, no. Some of you even more by getting in and riding with somebody else. Okay. But you exercise faith. You exercise faith when you move that button or hit the digital to say 72 degrees. You had faith that it would warm up. Okay. And so we have faith in those things. But our faith isn't a leap in the dark. 
You had faith in your car because... Okay, it's past inspection. The history of your car has, has most of the time not left you in a lurch. You, you probably had a history in a brake pedal. Uh, you probably had faith in a brake pedal because... You had faith to prevent that, but you had faith because in the past, when you hit the brake pedal, it stopped. Okay, your faith is based on some facts. That's my point. Okay, um, when we when we we're gonna because I want to talk about the facts. We do the same thing with airplanes. Okay, doesn't make sense to me how that big, huge airplane is going to get off the ground. But I have faith. I not only have faith in the instrument of the plane, but in the pilot, okay? And never met the pilot before, okay? Don't know if he's coming sober or not, okay? Do they ever come not so? Okay, there's been those cases. Okay, I have faith he's going to stay awake. Okay, we have faith. How, how, how is it that some of you have no faith in planes. Okay, I understand. Okay, but how is it that we have faith in the plane, in the pilot? Usually history, the fact that somebody has checked out. Yes, no, do they go through, do they go through checks every flight? Okay, do the pilots go through? Yeah, okay, so we have faith in it based on what facts we understand. So when we come to the Word of God, we say, I believe this is God's Word. Why? I don't know. Every man should give the reason of the hope that is with him, within him. How would you respond to somebody that said to you in this Bible study, well, how do you know? Here's what, the, here's what I would give them. I would give them these facts. I would give them the facts of, starting with this one, the claims of the Bible. That the Bible makes it very clear time and time again. We will read thousands of times we read the phrase, thus saith. Okay, and you say, well, that alone might, you know, well, let, let's follow through with a little bit more. The, even the people who are writing at times, they say, I know that what I am saying, God has put the words in my tongue. I understand it. We're talking about these individuals who are prophets, these individuals who God spoke to them, and they're credible individuals, and they made these statements. But we also know that when we jump to the New Testament, we understand that some of the writers, they understood that this was something unique. They understood that they weren't, oops, let me back up there. They weren't speaking of their own volition in all cases, sometimes they were being directed to say exactly what they were supposed to say. Sometimes the Spirit gave them some liberties, but they understood that they're, that they're being directed by somebody else. We can go, we talked about this, that the Old Testament, the New Testament writers. For instance, the Scriptures. And Scripture means... Graphe, all scriptures given by inspiration. Okay, so the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, okay, so how does Galatians 3 8, how does that tell us that Paul understood the Old Testament was inspired by God with scripture? Because he's quoting it. And he's calling Genesis 12 as being scripture that's inspired of God. Here, we'll take another one. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake. They understood this process. They were aware of it. They had the experience. They had the, they had the expertise of others that were sharing the facts. You also as lively stones are built up a holy priesthood. Wherefore also it is contained in Scripture, 
Scripture is given by inspiration. And then he quotes from Isaiah. What has he just done? He has confirmed that Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is Scripture. God breathed. Okay. And he talks about that. Now here, I, 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 needed, I didn't put one up here. I want you to go to Luke chapter 11. Because there's a passage here that's really important that I didn't put up here. I only reminded myself of it this morning. That I wanted to bring it to your attention. Um, yeah, it's at the end of the uh, gospel of, uh, end of chapter 11 in the gospel of Luke. But Jesus is speaking. Now, what does Jesus say about Old Testament? He quoted it frequently with authority. You know, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, such as when he's tempted by Satan. Um, he says, I did not come to destroy the law, but I came to fulfill or complete it. You have heard it said in the past, and then he, then he edits it and elaborates upon it. He says to the, to the um, uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, when they're in debate with him in the temple, he says, did you never read scriptures inspired of God? And he quotes. And so he is putting his confirmation. Luke chapter 11 is probably the strongest confirmation statement in, in me and my brain-dead moment. Didn't put it in. In chapter 11, verse 51, in Luke chapter 11, he says, From the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. He's talking to these people and saying that because you have not listened to the word of God, you take the context, you haven't listened to the word of God, you haven't responded, to whom much is given, much is required, you're going to be held responsible. And in this phrase, from Abel to Zacharias, that's an important statement that the Jews would understand, but it goes over our head. The reason being is this. What's the first book of the Old Testament? Genesis. In, the, in our Bible or Jewish Bible? Both. Okay. What's the last book of the Old Testament? Malachi. In our Bible or the Jewish Bible? Our Bible. What's the last book in the Jewish Bible of the Old Testament? Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles. And the last, the last person mentioned as a leader of Israel who was slain by the Babylonians in their invasion is named Zacharias. Okay? Who's the first one to die in the book of Genesis? Abel. In the Jewish Bible, which, by the way, Jesus would be operating from whose Bible? Jewish Bible. He has just said from Genesis to Second Chronicles, to the last chapter or two of Second Chronicles. He has in that statement from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zacharias, what has he just said? The entire Old Testament. The entire Old Testament. You have had the entire Old Testament, all the history, the law, the poetry. You've had all of it. And they speak of me, they testify of me, and you're going to be held accountable for it. This is one of the strongest statements that Jesus made about confirming that the Old Testament was God's word, that, that God was going to hold the Jews responsible for it. Does that make sense? Okay, let's go on. Uh, Jesus even says in John 5, search the scriptures, they testify of me. Well, what scriptures is he talking about? From Genesis to Second Chronicles at that time. Second Chronicles, okay, to the Jewish Bible. Because remember, at the time he says this, what part of the New Testament has yet to be written? 
All of it. Okay. Okay. Um, let's go on. Okay. So the claims of the Bible. That would include the claims of Jesus Christ. That would include, you know, the recognition by other people. There's, those are facts. The facts, and, and is that the only facts to rely on? No. Let's go a step further. There is the correctness of the Bible. We'll make this all alliterated so we can remember it easier. The correctness of the Bible. In the Bible is correct in all areas. There are multiple cases, and I'm not going to delineate all of them. There are multiple cases where there was questions of, was there really a Nebuchadnezzar? Was there really a Belshazzar? How come he's called the Daniel's the third in, in the kingdom? And, you know, that doesn't make sense. And then as archaeological discoveries were made, as research was made, as, okay, what about the, the walls of Jericho? Okay, they came... Uh, Tumbling down. Okay, is that a truism? Well, there was archaeological digs in the 1800s and further on. And, oh, we didn't find proof. But it's interesting that as they dug further, they found different layers of Jericho. And as they dug around that region, then they found there was another tell nearby that was an ancient city that fit the dates and the times. And the, the items that they found there better fit the date. It was just you know, on the, a, a hill over. And when they dug down there, they found found within that that some of the walls, when the walls of that depleted city that was Jericho, they found that the walls caved. Yeah, they they went different than if somebody was attacking, which ways would the walls go? Okay, so the walls came out and they found that there was a whole bunch of clay pots that were filled with, I'm going to use the word petrified, um, petrified food articles. Why does that strike you odd? If somebody invaded the city, they would have taken the food. And then when they did research, they found out that a lot of that grain that they found in full pots, it had burned. And so that led them to the conclusion of what? If their grain pots are filled and they're not taken, the one, first of all, it had to be what time of the year if you have full grain pots? Harvest time, which fits the care, the story exactly, okay? And then it talks about how the walls came in and then how, you know, they weren't to plunder anything and the destruction. And so a lot of those evidences as time goes by and it's revealed and there's more studies being done. Everything confirms Bible stories, never contradicting it. And so the problem isn't with archaeological studies. The problem isn't that the Bible is errant. It's that archaeological studies haven't caught up to the Bible. And so you have coins. Coins that give you the right, the right peoples at different times. Um, the cities, the locations. And so the, these, those are, you've got science. Science is starting to catch up more and more and more. But years ago, we... Even we talk about how we looked at this when we were in Job 38, when he took him on the tour of creation, how the, the earth is turning, uh, those types of ideas. So there's time and the paths in the seas that Job talks about and Psalms talks about, which helped understand the different ocean waves and currents and, and how they could navigate the world. And then you come to prophecy. This one is the easiest one for you and me to talk about. 27% of the Bible when it was written was prophetic at the moment. And so you have prophetic announcements time and time again. Let's just, let's just highlight a couple of them. Okay, let's just do this. Let's, let's talk about Isaiah. Isaiah is going to write to the Jews. And when he's writing, the northern kingdom has been taken away in 722. 
Okay? And a few years later, Isaiah is making prophecies. He's talking to the southern kingdom. That would be the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, and then all of those that, that Kings talks about, those who remained righteous and came from the northern tribes. And so he's preaching to the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom's been taken away 10 years ago. And as he's preaching, he's predicting, and he's saying that there's going to come a king of the north. And when this king of the north comes, he's going to allow all of us to come back into the land. What has he just said? Wait a minute. It's Cyrus, but what has he just said? He's living, and the Jews, the Jews, the remnant, they're living in the land. And he's saying, there's going to come a king, his name is Cyrus. He's a king of the north. He's going to allow us to come back into the land. What has he just implied? They're going to be taken out of the land. They're going to be forced out of the land. Okay? So he's making this prediction in 712. And in that prediction, he's talking about what's going to happen in the future. Well, then we fast forward, we have 605, and then finally in 586, they're taken out of the land. And then, after they're out of the land for a number of years, then there comes an upstart kingdom against the Babylonians, and it's Persia. Its leader is Cyrus. And so, whoops, let me back up. So what happens, whoops, I'm still wanting to back up. Um, there we go. He has named Cyrus as a leader of a northern kingdom. And at that time, the, nor, the, the kingdom would be unknown. They're still in the land. He's predicted we're going to be taken out of the land. And then after a number of years, we're going to be allowed to come in the land. And the man who will be on the throne, who will let us come back into the land from the far north, his name is Cyrus. How does he get a name like that? Generations before the, the, the man's even born. How does he get, come up with a name like that? Okay, it's God. It's God doing that. Then you have these prophecies like in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2 and 7 lays out the future of the, of the world's major governments, right? He's living in Babylon's time. He's predicting that there's going to be coming a, a, a bear that's you know, double haunched or the two arms that are, that are on that body. It's Medo-Persia. He talks about Greece that's coming with speed and how they're going to have bronze. How does he know that that's happening hundreds of years before? You know, Daniel's writing and he's talking about a Roman Empire that doesn't become the world empire until close around 100 AD, BC, excuse me. How does he get this information? How does he, in Daniel 9, he talks about that there's going to come 70 years, remember all this. He says there's going to be, a, before the kingdom, there's going to be a period of time, the Messiah will come. The Messiah will suffer and die. Then he talks about how the city will be destroyed by a different by the people. And then he's talking about how a new king will come. And that new ruler will come and create a world empire from the same old uh, uh, revitalized vestiges of the same people that destroyed the, the Jewish city. He's talking, you know. If we're reading it, we're going 70 AD, Jesus dying on the cross. We're reading these things. And we're going, okay, it makes perfect sense. But we forget that when it was first written, they had no clue. 
They had no clue. They were hundreds of years before it happened. And so we read it in reverse and we think they had 20-20 vision. They had no 20-20 vision. They had what God was telling them and they had no clue what it was going, how it was going to flesh out. But it fleshed out perfectly. And we've got the history that backs this all up and people say, well, the reason that it happened is because some of the apostles forged all those writings. And it's like, man, they take the truth and they distort it. They distort the truth. That when they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. That's what this is all about. And so we got prophecies about cities. You have the life of Jesus Christ. Name me prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. That he had no control over. What's that? Born in Bethlehem. He had no control. Well, a, a normal human being, 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 let's put it. He had no, you didn't control where you were being born. And probably the one who wanted to control where you were being born didn't have control over it. Your mom. Right? What else? Born of a virgin. What else? No broken bones on the cross. He had no choice in that one. What's that? Fleeing into Egypt. What else? Okay. You heard that resurrection. What else? What about the tomb? Yes, no? Did he have control over the tomb? Okay. With the rich man's tomb. Did he have control over who he's going to be crucified next to? Okay. Did he have control over what they would do with his garments? But that was predicted, was it not? Did he have control over what Judas would do? Did he have control over how much Judas would be paid? No. None of this. None of this. None of it. Okay, And then there's other prophecies that he, in his life, the way he spoke, what he did, the miracles, all those different things, he obviously was, a, was an active participant in bringing them about. But there are over, by estimates, there are over 300 specific detailed prophecies. You know what the odds of somebody fulfilling 300 prophecies are? They're astronomical. They're astronomical. It's, it's impossible. But with God, all things are... Okay, so I'm talking to an, a young convert, and I'm belaboring with, and I'm not doing it as deep as with you folk, but if you're talking with somebody, and you need to take the time with somebody who has heard about the Bible being um, questionable, take them through some of these passages. Show them that the Bible verifies with facts how it is potent, powerful. You got the claims, you got the correctness, you got this, you got the consistency of the Bible. This to me is an amazing, amazing fact. Let's just draw this up. Okay. The Bible was written over a period of 1600 years, Moses and the apostle John. Moses being the first to write Genesis, etc. So it's being written over 1,600 years. If somebody is writing a book and it took them 1,600 years to write, would you think there would be agreement from beginning to end? Probably not. Now let's, let's complicate it. That's 60 generations. And by the way, your generations after you agree 100% with you. Two generations after you. They will think and write the same as you. Right? Do they spell the same way? No, they don't. Okay, let's take a little bit further. Forty different authors. 
Some educated, some not so educated. Some single, some not. Some uh, who have um, been widowed, some who have different types of jobs. Now, here we're going to this, the consistency, 1,600 years, 60 generations, 40 different authors, and they all say the same thing. How is that possible? Okay, l- let me throw this out. Let me, let me just throw this out. Do, you know, uh, to use a, an illustration, speeches that were made by our political leaders who were called liberals in 1960... Okay, they would be conservative now. Hubert Humphrey presented a speech when he was running for president that was almost identical to the same speech that Dan Quayle made years later, and Quayle was mocked for it. Okay, because he was, but but they said, but do generations change? Yes, yes. Okay, in different locations. Okay, that would impact how you write. I bet you you would write differently, and I bet you in your lifetime, you've written differently based on where you're at and what's going on. Let's add to it. Three different continents. Let's add to it. Under various circumstances, in three different languages. You put that all together and you say, it all says the same thing. They all agree. They support one another. And by the way, when we talk about the different continents, that means they didn't always have the same information. Because they didn't have... Now remember, you know, we're, we're very, very thankful to Al Gore because he gave us internet. Okay. And so they didn't have internet. He wasn't around yet to create it. And so they couldn't compare notes on their own, but who was guiding them so that their notes were the same? The Spirit of God. Spirit. This is an amazing... This is, th- these facts are absolutely amazing. That there's no contradiction and there's a consistent message with all those facts. You have to look at facts and say, black is not black. To look at the, by comparison, to look at the Bible and say, with that information, it can't be God's Word. It, it, it's a miracle it's supernatural. Let's, let's give you another thought here. Okay. That goes with this. The continuity of the Bible. With this in mind, the continuity of the Bible, what we're talking about is the Bible has survived hundreds of years. It has been transmitted from generation to generation with great accuracy. How do, you know, Moses first writes and comes all the way down into the period of the Chronicles. They're taken out of their land. They even lose scriptures for a while. Remember the King Josiah found the scriptures. And yet there's a, it's kept together. And yet there's attacks on it. There are attacks today that keep on saying, well, how do we know that we have the Bible? We don't have the original, the original writings. They're not in, in some parchment. There is some interesting information you can get off of the ARC website. This is a video that comes. I need sound on this one. Okay. Interesting video. Good illustration of facts. Facts that support the idea that our Bible has been preserved by God. It's an amazing book. The continuity of Scripture. Let's pick up on there for next week. Okay. We got to get ready for a worship service. Thanks for listening.